Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. The never-ending arms race between bacteria, fungi and human cells. Antibiotic resistance is increasing, but so is fungal infection resistance. So how can humans keep tabs on what bacteria are doing to develop resistance to our antibiotic treatments? And how can we develop new treatments that work in a variety of ways that are simple to produce and still effective against some of the new evolved threats? It's easy in the midst of this pandemic to forget that there are other public health crises happening and other looming ones that scientists and doctors are trying to work desperately to avoid. One of the biggest ones that scares people in public health is the rise of antibiotic resistance. Now, we have around five categories of antibiotics that we use to treat all kinds of infections bacterial infections that is and and the problem with any treatment or medicine is that you're constantly in an arms race against the things that you're trying to defeat in this case bacteria bacterial infections are growing resistance to our antibiotic treatments and even combinations of antibiotic treatments and this is a big deal According to the O'Neill report, which was commissioned by the UK's government's Wellcome Trust, a large research body there, antibiotic resistance is a major global crisis that causes around 700 deaths a year. Now, without a new plan to develop more antibiotic treatments or count down on contamination of antibiotics, it's estimated by the Wellcome Trust that that would increase to around 10 million annually by 2050. That's a pretty spooky number, but obviously people are working pretty hard to avoid that. The real issue is that there's only so many classes and categories of antibiotics that we've developed and research stalled for a very long time. Now that changed around 10 years ago, but it still takes a very long time to develop new medicines. And it requires a lot of surveillance of what is actually going on in wild samples of bacteria to understand how the bacteria in the general community is evolving and growing resistance to common treatments. So researchers from the Anglia Ruskin University published in the paper Ecology and Evolution, including Joan Rodriguez, Harise Nair, Christopher O'Kane and Carrie Walker, about how they were monitoring the prevalence of antibiotic resistance in random samples they were taking from bird droppings out near the River Cam in Cambridge. Now, one of the reasons why they were looking at this particular area is the River Cam runs basically through the centre of Cambridge which means it's incredibly busy with people. A great spot for walking, picnicking, boating. And so when you are out and about there and you say, want to keep yourself clean and preventing contamination from, I don't know, anything that might be lurking out there, there's a very good reason to wash your hands. And the problem is that most 60% or so human infections each year can be attributed back to a zoonotic origin, zoonotic diseases. They're passed from animals to humans. And this can be also true for any type of bacterial infection. And so therefore monitoring potential pathogen reservoirs in animal populations is incredibly important. And that's effectively what these researchers were doing. They were looking at wild birds along the River Cam in Cambridge by tracking their droppings to effectively see what bacteria or other diseases were present in these communities of birds because they have a pretty high chance of interacting somehow with a human, it's a good chance for these diseases to be spread through. Now, we talk about disease reservoirs a lot in public health. These might be populations of unvaccinated people, or travellers, or even animals. 
And that's reason sometimes you hear about large culls of a certain animal group in a country where they're concerned about the prevalence of these animals carrying a pretty bad disease. So the researchers took around 115 samples from around the river cam over a two year period. And it was basically a half mile stretch of riverbank all in and around Cambridge. So a pretty busy area. Now, when they did that, they found 24 of those 115 samples, so not a huge percentage, but under a quarter, contained a large group of bacteria, in particular, the bacteria Pseudomonas. Now, one of the reasons why they are interested in the high rates of the Pseudomonas bacteria is because it's normally associated with signs of disease outbreaks in animal populations. When you've done previous studies, say in Spain or Sublachia, if you look at the bird droppings, in those countries, you find the Pseudomonas bacteria in around two to 10%, not. And Pseudomonas is pretty tricky for people because it actually is one of the things that can be cross-passed, cross-contaminated passed through from birds to humans. And that's bad enough on its own, a rise in a particular bacteria strain that actually can cause illness in humans. That's bad. But what's more bad from that was that they found a lot of Pseudomonas urogenosa, which is known to cause illness which ranging from ear infections all the way through to pretty dangerous and fatal lung infections in those with a weakened immune system. In the UK, Pseudomonas aeruginis is the second most common hospital infection, and roughly a quarter of people who get it in hospital can actually die from the illness because they're already in a pretty weak state. So then, Okay, we found a lot of this bacteria, and we found a lot of this particular subvariant of that bacteria, which we know causes a lot of illness in humans. Then the ne next thing was to test its bacteria's resistance to antibiotics. So they tried the five different types, cyphamine, cyprofluoraxin, gentisim, levoflaxin, and meropenin. And what they did and noticed was that the pseudomonas bacteria were resistant to at least one of the antibiotics used on them. And three quarters of them were multi-drug resistant, which though means they're resistant to two or more of the antibiotics used. Now, fortunately for us, all of the pseudomonas bacteria samples that they tested were actually responsive to at least one of the types of antibiotics, which means the arsenal is not fully depleted. But it shows that the actual potential and just a wild random sampling for these bacteria to be actually getting very strongly resistant to one or more of the commonly used antibiotics is a pretty scary thing indeed. And this kind of surveying studies of wild data of bacteria effectively abilities is really important for researchers and public health experts to track the prevalence of antibiotic resistance. And the thing about antibiotic resistance is it's going to be also very highly variant amongst regions. It's not gonna be necessarily as simple as a widespread pandemic where we're tackling the same thing more or less across the world. You'll find different clusters in different areas, even in the same country or city with different levels of antibiotic resistance. And you can end up with say like a hospital having a particular outbreak of a certain type of antibiotic resistance, which hopefully may not be prevalent in other parts of the world. But nevertheless, it's important that studies like this continue to track and monitor the disease reservoirs in animal communities, but also how those disease reservoirs actually also contain antibiotic existence, canary in the coal mines for us. What indicators that things might not be going so well or changing with the levels of antibiotic resistance in wild found bacteria. Some good research published in the journal Ecology and Evolution about keeping tabs on with bird droppings, how antibiotics are faring in their fight against bacteria. Thank you.
from tales of monitoring antibiotic resistance to tales of developing new antibiotics, the other side of this arms race war. And if we're going to look at a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences with researchers from the Karolinska Institute in Poland, along with the Umeå University in Switzerland. Lead author on the paper is Elizabeth Reitberg. Now, the majority of antibiotics used from day-to-day -day work in laboratories actually work by inhibiting the bacteria's ability to form a protective cell wall. This causes the bacteria basically to crack, called cell lysis. Now, aside from, say, penicillin, they also inhibit enzymes building up on the wall. Newer antibiotics, such as daptomycin, or the recently discovered texiobactin, bind to special molecules like lipid-2. Now, lipid-2 is a pretty interesting case because it's needed by all bacteria to actually strengthen that cell wall. So antibiotics that bind to this cell wall building block are actually really complicated and have really long molecules that make them basically difficult then to modify and improve with basic chemical methods because they're just really complex pieces of chemical engineering, which of course makes it a scale problem. You can't really improve or modify these complex methods that are tackling this lipid 2, this cell wall building block, because basically any mechanism you develop to do that has to be so difficult and complex that it's also really difficult to improve. And you may want to improve it because, for example, a lot of those molecules are inactive against a certain category of problematic bacteria, which have a second layer, the outer membrane, that stops the antibacterials getting in in the first place to underdo this work. So look, lipid 2 is really useful. It's an attractive target for new antibiotics, but you've got to find a better way to make it and bind on this lipid molecule that isn't so well, complex. And that's what the researchers were doing, using effectively molecular techniques, a new group of molecules that can be used against many different categories of antibiotic resistance bacteria. So researchers from the Karolinska Institute in the University in Switzerland tested a large number of chemical compounds for their ability to liaise pneumococci bacteria, that one of the most commonly acquired variants of bacteria that can cause pneumonia. And the initial tests were carried out with researchers from a lot of different labs scattered across Europe. And with collaborations with the University of Bonn in Germany, they found a group of molecules called THCZ. Not THC that you might be thinking of in from cannabinoids, but a different type of compound that inhibits the formation of cell walls on the bacteria by directly binding again to this lipid 2. Now, these molecules also prevented the formation of a sugar capsule for that further ammonia bacteria actually need to escape the immune system and further cause disease. So the benefit of THCZ is that it's actually really small. They're able to be changed chemically really easily and they have a lot of advantages. So the THCZ has the antibiotic effect that they're looking for, stopping the lipid 2, but the simplicity that makes it possible to manufacture in scale and also modify in case you want to boost a certain factor. Plus it also has some side benefits like stopping avoidance of the human immune system. So knowing they now found a pretty good potential new antibiotic, they scaled this out to look at some antibiotic resistant bacteria. MRSA, for example, VRE and PNSP. These are all strains of antibiotic resistant bacteria. And what they found is the THCZ is actually really good against the strains that were antibiotic resistance, even ones that cause gonorrhea or tuberculosis in humans. And they weren't able to find any bacteria that with repeated exposure, we're able to develop 
are resistant to this particular molecular attack, though I'm sure given time bacteria will somehow find a way. So now the researchers have shown that THEZ molecules can be a good mechanism for tackling antibiotic resistant bacteria. They're now looking at ways to further improve it, giving it a way to penetrate the outer cell membrane and get in there to bind to that lipid 2 to really tackle one of the big problems. It shows that developing new antibiotics is possible and that new techniques can be made not only as good as current antibiotics are, but also even better, doing new and improved features and more simple to manufacture than current antibiotics. So it's not all doom and gloom, but it does need precise work and consistent concerted effort from governments and research organizations to make sure we can develop these antibiotics in time before we run out of effectively the available use of the current crop. There's some great research published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science on ways to use molecular methods to develop pretty simple but effective new classes of antibiotics. Now, of course, we have medications called antibiotics that help us fight against bacterial infections. But what about other type of infections, like fungal-based infections? Well, when we need kind of treatments that can work against fungal infections, the problem is just as antimicrobial resistance improves, so does fungal infection resistance. Basically, the fungi get better at fighting back against our treatments. And that means most of our medications right now aren't particularly effective against fungal infections. So researchers publishing in the journal ACS Infectious Diseases have identified some new compounds that can be used, much in the same way as we talked about with the chemical-based methods for generating new antibiotics, to generate new ways of tackling fungal infections. Now, leader author on this paper was Christian Desjardins, along with a large range of collaborators. It was published in the American Chemical Society's journal Infectious Diseases. Now, what they looked at were superinfectious infections by Candida. It's a type of fungi that can cause irritating but relatively minor conditions, things like thrush or athlete's foot. But when it gets pretty bad, a widespread infection, an invasive one, it can be pretty debilitating and, of course, deadly. Now, if you think of infections like cryptotocal meningitis and other hospital-inquired fungal infections, it can be pretty nasty. Now, the problem is, the more large surgeries or long stays in hospitals you have, and when you have things like catheters or immunosuppressive therapies, it puts you at greater risk, not only for bacterial-based infections, but also fungal-based infections. Someone who has, say, severe COVID-19 or HIV, they're really at risk for these fungal infections. And often, the treatments can be pretty nasty. Um, which is not good for the person who's actually undergoing the treatment who's already pretty seriously ill. And that helps as well boost the resistance of fungal infections themselves. So researchers are trying to find ways to tackle the fungal cell walls, much in the same way as researchers tackle the lipid cells in antibacterial resistance. They can also look at the same thing with fungi. But there are other mechanisms as well, which is what researchers were trying to tackle, researchers like Glenn Palmer and others in this paper. They looked at the fungal fatty acid synthase and certain other desaturate enzymes, which are really, really important for the fungus to actually grow and spread through the human 
system. Now, what the researchers were looking for was ways to effectively inhibit these enzymes. But first, of course, you've got to isolate them. So they turned to genetic engineering with a whole cell assay to screen thousands and thousands of small molecules to find ones that could actually inhibit the growth of these fatty acids inside the fungus. And what they found is that they could block FA synthase activity, so this fungal fatty acid synthesizing in the Canidae albicans cell culture. And they're able to block around 16 variants of it, which is a pretty good amount. And they identified a acyl hydroside structure, a key molecule, which could be used and built into new treatments. It, especially because they showed it was also good against drug-resistant strains of several species of fungi. Now, the even better part about this is that throwing in these inhibitors and tackling this particular molecule, they weren't increasing the toxicity for mammalian cells. Basically, this leaves mammalian cells unharmed. It doesn't hurt us in any way, but definitely hurts the fungus, which is exactly what you want in an antifungal agent. So developing new treatments for fungal infection can be difficult, but the chemical method approach is showing a lot of promise, both in antibacterial resistance as well as antifungal resistance. So this is some great research published in the American Chemical Society Journal of Infectious Diseases about ways to use enzyme blocking and microbial methods to tackle fungal infection. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From keeping tabs on the rates of antibiotic resistance in the community, all the way to developing new treatments for fungal infections and bacterial infections with new classes of molecular antibiotics. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.